Hello and welcome to the Enlarm podcast series. I'm Stan Crook uh, and I'm your host of the podcast series and I'm chairman and CEO of Enlarm. The Enlarm podcast series is a podcast series that is devoted to the needs of nanorare patients and, and their families. And today we have a special guest who I know reasonably well, and uh, most of you probably know uh, her at least at some level, and that's Sarah Glass, who is the uh, Chief Operating Officer at Enlorum. Sarah, welcome. Thank you, Stan. Very happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, this this does feel a little odd to be talking <laughs> as though we uh, as though we just met. But anyway, we <laughs> we'll work our way through that and 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 and, and get to get to, I think, what will be a very interesting conversation for folks um, about um, Sarah and her role at Enlarm and why Sarah's here and and how much um, how, how much of a personal stake she has in this process as well. So, uh, Sarah, um, I guess we should begin at the beginning. Where did you grow up? In, in the South? <laughs> you don't even know this about me, Stan. I was born in I, Kentucky, actually. <laughs> well, you know South, that? <laughs> that, that, that's yeah. they play basketball there, but not as yeah. well in Indiana. But they uh, not quite. No, so I so I actually moved around the East Coast um, in Kentucky, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin and Ohio. Ah, yeah, cool. Uh, and uh, I, I I think maybe your parents are both retired now. But what mm-hmm. what did your parents do as as you were growing up? Yeah, my mom was a nurse um, in an oral maxillofacial surgeon's office um, for some time when I was really young. And my dad, dad was a pharmacist, so he he was director of pharmacy at many, many different hospitals. So that's kind of how we how we moved around and ultimately ended up at Cardinal Health um, before he retired. Uh, well, so you were exposed to medicine from the earliest uh, period of your life, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And 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 would did that inform you about what sort of career you wanted to s- sort of build for yourself? Not necessarily, honestly. I mean, I think I I learned a little bit about what my dad did, but you know, I think I I really always was more inclined towards kind of the the math and science. I mean, that definitely interested me more, and so that's kind of what I went to you know, focus on in college. Um, and then that's where I learned about genetics. And I think that's really kind of, kind of where, who knew I'd be here today, but that's, that was the beginning of me being like, wow, there's something really cool that I think I could really find a career in. Yeah. So this is an undergraduate course in biochemistry or cell biology or something like that. And yeah, both of those, but really it was, I mean, it was really genetics. Like it was straight, like human genetics too. Um, and then, you know, I had actually my my brother-in-law um, was in an MD-PhD program as well at the University of Pittsburgh. And so one summer when I was in college, he he kind of let me shadow him um, as an undergraduate and and worked in the lab of a, a gentleman working on muscular dystrophy um, mm-hmm. and, you know, really was like, this is fascinating. I also had the chance to work at, you know, muscular dystrophy camps that summer. Um, so really it was kind of my first introduction to, to rare disease and to genetics and just to the needs of these patients. Um, and even at the time, I mean, it's not, it wasn't really like, well, okay, now we know the gene, let's fix it. You know, it was really just about let's understand it more. So that's really where it started for me. So you, in, in one summer, you got both the hard science and, and, and the hard reality of what, what happens to these patients clinically and the damage it does to them and their, and their families. So. 
Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. I mean, I think the, I mean, I can even, you know, it's funny you mentioned this because I haven't thought about that camp in so long, but it was just, um, and I, you know, it, it was so impactful. It was unbelievable. And a lot of people from this lab, you know, went to, to be counselors. And um, and so it was, you know, individuals affected by by Duchenne muscular dystrophy year after year who were just obviously very, 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 very sick. Um, but just having such a joyous time. I mean, that's the thing, the joy you can bring to these kids' lives was pretty amazing. Yeah. And at that time, there was essentially no hope for mm -hmm. for Duchenne's, right? <laughs> and then you went on and did your PhD at Ohio State. Mm -hmm. I did. I did. So I was with um, um, Karis Eng, who's really clinical cancer genetics. And and so we were focused on looking at rare tumor types and trying to understand, you know, genetics of even some of the non-syndromic type of, of tumor types and, and ultimately finding that many of them had genetic variations um, and then moved on to do a postdoc. And again, you know, I think a lot of the exploration was thinking about for that was looking at cancer um, and, and pharmacogenetics and thinking about, again, like what is the role of genetics? So I think really, it, you know, in, as a general principle, it's like really moving towards that space of like now, wow, look at all these, all these different, you know, side effects and, you know, causation of, of different diseases, they have a role in, of, with genetics. And so then, you know, I ultimately moved to GSK where, you know, was really, again, thinking about the role of genetics in, in disease and in some drug discovery and development, but not even targeting the gene mm -hmm. um, yet. So at, at GSK, then you were in the, in the medical genetics group at, in the basic sciences or on the clinical side or or both? Or? Yeah, so it was a it was a pretty large genetics and ph pharmacogenetics was the focus. Um, and so really looking at most of the, the big drug programs and thinking about were there genetic markers for safety and efficacy, mm -hmm. um, you know, and trying to, you know, and I think at the time thinking about like, if, if there's anything, are there ways to stratify patients at a minimum? So maybe you're not trying to target that variant, but you can think, let's just say we understand this particular variant led entirely to this side effect, then could we, you know, have that as a risk factor. So that was kind of the focus of that group. Mm -hmm. And, and um, that was your, your entry level job after you got your PhD. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it was called, it was called Mendelian geneticist. I saw this job. It was advertised. I thought, wow, this is like, what a dream. I mean, how cool is that? How many, you know, so yeah. And it was, it was such a really, really great opportunity. Fantastic, strong group that they still have a really strong group there. And that was in North Carolina or was mm -hmm. it in outside Philadelphia? That was in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Did you ever make it to the campus outside Philadelphia? Oh, yeah. I mean, a yeah. number of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the campus I built many, many decades yeah. ago. <laughs> Isn't it funny? I know. You yeah. came before and who knew? <laughs> yes. And I uh, and and undoubtedly that program began uh, had its inception with stuff that uh, that I introduced to the company in the in the 1980s. So I guess we cross paths that we cross paths in uh, I guess a different dimension or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and and then uh, uh, you you ended up working in a number of clinical CROs or at least uh, uh, at least one anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, what took you there? 
Well, actually, it was a it was an organizational kind of move with with GSK and a partnership there. So, you know, I did end up at, with Parkcell. Um, I also had a, a short time with them, and then I also spent some time in the Precision Medicine Group at Teva Pharmaceuticals. And then I ended up going back to Parkcell, and again, really thinking in their translational medicine group with a focus on rare diseases. Um, just really thinking a lot, then almost shifting the mindset too is you know thinking about precision medicine, but then with a lot more of a focus on the patients, like what's the experience? What's a trial experience? You know, I mean, how many times we would, we would go through protocols and you'd be like interested in having biomarkers and tests for this and that. And you're like, literally, you're going to bleed these patients dry. If you, if you actually look at the logistics of this protocol. So it was really a lot of opportunity to learn and then take that, you know, take what we were trying to do and to understand and the data you needed to gather that was so important in a clinical trial, but then put it with the mindset of like, what's the actual patient? What's the family's experience day to day? So that's kind of, and I ended up at, at Parkcell working with them. Uh, you know, it's, it, it is interesting that people take for granted that we, we do rare disease trials, mm -hmm. but you and I know that there were no rare disease trials for many, many decades. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't know what rare diseases were and you were involved in, you know, a lot of the learning about how to conduct a trial when you have limited numbers of patients who are um, progressing and desperately ill. Um, it was something the industry had to learn. And Paracel, among others, played a key role in that, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a there's a huge amount of effort really trying. And I think what's so interesting is that one of the one of the main challenges was like finding patients. You know, it's like so drug companies were you know, developing a drug for this disease that they know in principle had X number of patients. So then, you know, at part, then the job is like, how can we find the patients that should fit this protocol? And I think reflecting on what we do at Enlorum, it's such an interesting difference, you know, which I, I find to be so important. Yeah. And again, um, a, a, a tremendous amount of learning over the last couple of decades about how to do these things that you know, obviously applies to what we do at Enlorum in one fashion or another, and also the management of these patients, what, what it is that they require just to be cared for, which no one knew. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 you know, we at Ionis had to learn a lot about that in a number of the rare disease trials that we were doing um, as well. And it's, it's just something you learn. You have to learn the hard way by, by doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And and your husband Oliver is a PhD as well, right? Mm -hmm. He is, yeah. He he is a PhD from Duke University and he was faculty there for a number of years and and um ultimately is really focused in the same similar type of area as well. He's he's a much better scientist than I am, to be honest. He's very much more in tune with the details of the science where I'm obviously thinking much more bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um I guess probably the most interesting next topic would be Ethan. Mm -hmm. You have two children. Uh, how how old are they? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so I have uh, my daughter Anella. She's eleven. She's in fifth grade. She loves to go horseback riding and do everything that typical eleven year old love to do. Um, I have a son, Ethan, who's he's six now. Um, so he was he was born in twenty seventeen, and um, he was just had had a really tough go at life. Honestly, the first few years and went through a number of different, you know, sort of major, major health issues. And, and um, he was diagnosed with the end of one mutation 
in 2020. Um, so he has a, a neurodevelopmental disorder, but he's a wonderful, he's a happy little guy for the most part when he's, when he's not sick, um, he's healthy and he's happy and, um, yeah, you just live, live day to day. So it's a very, very different, you know, so that's interesting. You know, you mentioned both kids cause they're just polar opposite, but honestly, they're so in tune with one another. She's like the best sister and, you know, he is, he's wonderful to her. He adores her and, and she's really the best friend he'll always have probably, um, which is pretty amazing. So. Yeah. So did you know right away that, that he had problems? Well, yeah, I mean, the first, um, you know, the first couple of weeks, he was just not, you know, it was, it was all feeding. I mean, I think it's a lot of what, you know, it's just, and so ultimately, then you get this, what we hear a, a lot of patients go, you know, this failure to thrive to, you know, diagnosis. And I mean, you know, even, you know, I think that's the thing is like, so all of a sudden, everything we've just spoke about is you're a professional, and then all of a sudden, now you're in the in the hospital bed with your baby. And they're saying your child has failure to thrive. And you're like, what? Like, what does that even mean? I mean, literally, no idea, knew nothing about this. He's not going to survive if he doesn't get a feeding tube. And, you know, we better bring the geneticist in. His ears look turned. His eyes are too close. His chin, you know, you're like, oh my gosh. So, so yes, he had a lot of troubles. He was on a feeding tube for many, many months. He was super, super, you know, skin. I mean, he was skinny. He couldn't keep anything on. And I think, you know, reflecting, I mean, he had... GI problems. So he had a couple of GI surgeries. He had eye problems. He had a couple of eye surgeries. I mean, he just had, you know, he had this and that with most of his systems were not developed sufficiently to be able to thrive on his own. And so he, um, you know, really the first, first year or two, um, you know, the first year he was really, you know, there were a lot of, he had this major, you know, one of the scariest thing he had just where he couldn't, he couldn't actually even swallow some of the time. So he would choke and he would turn blue and then you'd have the ambulance. Um, and it's awful. Honestly, you can tell I get, I mean, it was just reflecting on that was just like one of those things. And I, I can just remember finally, we were just every single night we were on, we actually had, you know, as you know, now I, I operate by like Excel sheets. We literally had on my son's door, like, okay, mom, three hours, all over three hours, like just trying to survive, like everyone. So every, somebody up holding him up all around the clock. Um, and finally it was like three or four weeks of this. And we got in touch, Oliver got in touch with the a GI um, physician on call. And she was like, pack your bags. You come into the ER. You, you have to, I mean, cause he was literally just choking. Like he couldn't somehow, you know, we just couldn't, you know, and you're like, what's going on? You have no idea. Um, so so yeah, he had a, he had a nerve conduction problem that meant that he couldn't swallow. Couldn't. Well, I mean, you know, honestly, maybe, you know, maybe that's no, what it was. We just don't even know what it was. And I mean, so, but that ended up resulting in him, you know, and there literally it was, you know, it's like what all these go through is like, does he have an allergy? Well, he is this, you know, all the, let's throw all these things at it. Um, and so then, you know, then he was in the hospital in like the ICU, you know, sort of very, and then they ended up putting him on the feeding tube at the end of that. So that was like the first few months. And then he was on a feeding tube for a few months. He got nice and you know, fat, like really rolly, rolly baby, big cheeks, like he should coming from, from my side of the family. And, um, and then, and then, then he wasn't at risk anymore of at least not thriving. Then we started to learn really what was going on, which was just, you know, he just wasn't developing as he should. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's a tragic story, but it's, it's sort of the common story for children mm -hmm. born with 
nano rare diseases that we hear every day, you and I. Literally every day. And, uh, and, and, and it doesn't make it less heartbreaking the 150th time you've heard it versus no. the first time. Does it? Yeah, not at all. And there's no poignancy as a poignant is it's your child. You're being told that your child is failing to thrive. I hate that term. I know. I would, I would banish it from medicine if I could I could do that. There has to be a better, better way of expressing um, that that your child is very sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's, I mean, and literally we had it, right, last, last I mean, a couple of weeks. We have it, we see it with patients all of the time. And I mean, the major, major GI issues and just the inability to actually take on the nutrition. I mean, you know, it's, life-saving yeah. or not so he was i mean ethan was very lucky he was born into a loving family with two mm -hmm. very well educated parents uh, well-educated grandparents all in some way knowledgeable and yet how long did it take to get a uh, get a genetic diagnosis it took three years so three years so essentially we um we did have so all of those times each you know, we get, you know, so he has optic nerve hypoplasia. Okay. He's going to go blind. He has to have eye surgeries and okay, we can deal with that. Well, no, actually he doesn't have that. He had, you know, so then we went down all these different misdiagnoses. Um, and, but each one was an important and very critical symptom of, of his broader disease. But even at the time we still had multiple different genetic tests. So they did like a, you know, or a GWAS snip array, they did a methylation test. They do, you know, different tests looking at, we had one physician who used, I think the app that you look at faces for facial recognition, nothing came up and we're like, oh, phew, you know? And then literally, I mean, during the pandemic, during that summer, I mean, we can even, I can reflect on the fact that like there is, you know, there are so many things where you get through this and you're like, oh, did you hear he just said that word? Oh my gosh, he's going to be okay. Like, I mean, literally it's that moment to moment. And then you're like, oh, never said it again. Um, it wasn't intentional or that wasn't actually a word or, you know, so this whole, this whole three years. So we ultimately were put into the undiagnosed disease network. So we were, you know, very privileged to be at Duke university. So had a, a course, you know, all these specialists who are very much experts in their area. Um, and finally went into this, you know, undiagnosed disease study as a research candidate thinking like, there's no way we're going to find anything. And then the pandemic hit and we hear nothing. You know, so that whole, I mean, it was a good from fall um, 2019 through to fall 2020, I guess, that whole summer, like really that summer, I can remember in particular, everybody's like isolate from one another and we're thinking maybe he's going to be okay, no diagnosis. And then we get a call and they say, we have a diagnosis, but we actually need another sample to CLIA confirm it because it's a pandemic. So we don't have access to the backup samples. So we're not going to tell you what it is. We can't tell you what it is now, but, but we need to get you guys in for more samples. So they sent, sent some samples for myself and Oliver and Ethan. And then, um, you know, it was maybe it was October 17th, like a Friday afternoon at five, we got a call from the genetic counselor and she was like, okay, do you have time to chat? And I'm like, yes. And so she said, here's the gene name. We're like, I mean, never heard of it, of course. And, you know, this mutation, we don't know anything about it. And that's it, you know. And so we, we spoke to the, the geneticist who leads that program. He's just a wonderful, wonderful person. And, you know, I mean, they just said the reality of it, right? I mean, really smart, wonderful people with good intentions who now have this really well, you know, very robust data set to show us this is a causative mutation for this child. 
and there's nothing that we can do about it. So here's how the symptoms are. And this, there is an advocacy group. So we recommend you do that. And, um, and, you know, so that was kind of it. We, we had a chat with her, I guess a couple weeks later and that was a really tough, tough time. I'm sure it was. And, um, and it's, uh, again, this is a history you and I hear every day. Mm -hmm. The specialist in whatever organ, the ophthalmologist, the gastroenterologist, or this or that or the other, they all think it's a disease in their organ as opposed to a disease of the patient. Mm -hmm. So you get all these fragmented efforts to potentially help, but in fact, they identify the manifestations of the problem but don't lead you to a place where you actually unless you get genetic sequencing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that was, yeah, that was what finally got us there was the, the full sequencing. And while it's difficult to accept, it's, it's also true that we are living among the most privileged because there now is genetic genomic sequencing that can give you answers like that. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think what's funny is, I mean, not funny, but reflecting back is like there was even, I want to say maybe after two years or something, there was like, well, you can do this, you know, sequencing. And it, I want to say it was going to be ten or $15,000 out of pocket. Um, and, you know, and they're like, well, the likelihood of finding something is very low. And, you know, so then you think all this benefit risk, we're like, well, why should we put that amount of money? And he seems fine. He just said that word. So he must be, he's going to be okay. Right. So we don't need to do that. And um, and so, you know, so you don't do that, you know, so that's the thing, just that, that privilege and the access to things, even, even when given the opportunity at that point with, with that high cost and the, then the, you know, the rationale that it probably wasn't going to find anything. Um, I don't know. It's always, you know, 50, 50 look or retrospective, you look back and you think, well, we've done this we've found it done earlier. That. Yeah. Well, again, um, so little was known and so much is known in just two more years, three more years. It's just amazing. Mm -hmm. And and so you remember the exact moment, the exact date, the exact time, the exact words when you when you learned what the truth was and that and that Ethan has a mutation that's going to be present the rest of his days and going to have an effect that could result in cumulative problems over over time. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that Sometimes I don't think our parents and patients understand that, that a mutation is forever and that it is, whether we feel it or see it or know it, it's producing damage at the cellular level that will eventually accumulate and give us signs and symptoms. Mm -hmm. and yeah, absolutely. So Ethan's, uh, in simple terms, what's Ethan's mutation and why, why, why has he been so sick? Um, it's a, it's called DERK1A. So it's a receptor tyrosine kinase, but it's expressed broadly. So, it, you know, it impacts generally, you know, pretty much every system in his body. Um, and it's a, it's an intronic. So it's like ne right near the splice site mutation. So it's a little bit more difficult to target. Um, but, but mostly, you know, most of all, it just, it affects all of his, all of his, you know, systems essentially. I mean, it's whether it's, it's speech, it's balance, it's, um, you know, it's obviously GI, it's vision, it's, you know, seizures, febrile seizures. He got, he had this first seizure, actually, we were at Disney World, of all places. Um, and, you know, it was like we had flown in, I don't know if I had told you this, but it was like we had took it, take a 6am flight, 
and we're you know very happy to be there in the in the summer um and it was like i think he was he was four or something and literally we were at a restaurant and you know and we didn't know i mean because sometimes when he does things like you're not sure if he's just doing things because you don't know or if there's something actually wrong and the next thing you know he i mean he had a good 10 minute seizure and they had to call the ambulance and throw stuff off the table and um, so that's another, so that's one of the, so he, and he's had multiple of those now. So I think that's in many, many of the kids, his, there are about 600 kids and with DERP1A syndrome, none of them have his same mutation. So again, it's, it's still an end of one situation where, um, you know, everybody's affected slightly differently. Um, it does seem like there's no direct kind of genotype phenotype, but there is some, you know, at least broad understanding of what most people have, which is what I mentioned, kind of these general characteristics that are life altering. And, you know, like you said, the bottom line is he doesn't have a chance for an independent life um, unless we do something about it. So. Yeah. And, you know, again, bad luck. Uh, it, it just bad luck that it happened. It happened in a tyrosine kinase. These are proteins that phosphorylate lots of things, and you have to phosphorylate lots of things to live. And and as a consequence, he had multiple organs that that were having difficulty, and and so on. And only now we we know enough to understand that if if he's got multiple system problems almost certainly a genetic basis for that that involves one of these proteins that plays multiple roles in, mm -hmm. in all these organs. It's, you know, having lived through all this, it still continues to amaze me how much more um, sophisticated the way I think mm -hmm. about health and, and disease and how much more sophisticated my, my way of thinking has gotten in just the four years I've been doing and Lauren, yeah. And again, glibly about the fact that we wouldn't send, but I, I'm taken aback frequently by how cumulative knowledge then enhances the pace of gains of knowledge. And we're in the process of doing that in in the Netterer space. Nothing was known. Absolutely. Ago. It's, a, it's amazing, honestly. Yeah. So um, uh, you want to just talk about how we came to to meet? <laughs> yeah, so I found this Dr. Stanley Crook on LinkedIn. Um, actually, Oliver found uh, through hearing about, you know, different some of the work that you were just beginning to do at Lorem in, in 2020, 2021. And again, being at Parkcell, I was um, working with a fantastic group. And, you know, that was right when Ethan had been diagnosed and, um, you know, really as, as a parent, you know, sort of read, he, you know, was like, well, what about this, you know, Dr. Crook? And so thankfully I was like, well, you know what, I would love to actually run his trials. Like these are trial, like how, who's going to do that? I wonder if maybe, maybe Parkcell could help. Um, and then, but really, you know, reached out and was surprised to get a response that you were willing to chat with me. And so I think, you know, obviously we spoke briefly about, about Ethan, um, you know, but also then for pretty quickly was like, wow, I want to help. Like, wow, I was so inspired by you, honestly, just your, um, just the mission. Like you were just like, ah, this is what I'm doing. And even though you could be, you know, sailing the world or doing all these other fun things in your retirement, you're dedicated to people like my son. And I just, you know, I think that was the thing. So we chatted, I think a couple of times and 
Um, eventually I was like, man, I, I think I have some skills and I have this personal professional passion that, that maybe I could help you achieve your mission. So. Yeah. And, and it turns out that Ethan is one of our patients. And, yeah. and I think there's been, you know, very interesting progress by, by the, the group in Australia. Uh, I'm still not clear how you came to get them involved in, in, in trying to help Ethan. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, it, you know, that's, that's the coolest thing I think about being where I am today is like, so um, my, my boss from Teva, your Grossman, who had a, a really close friend, Anthony Akari, who is, who is in Australia. And she was, we were going to be both at ASHG. She was like, Hey, you should just chat with Anthony. Um, and so we ended up meeting. He saw on LinkedIn that I was in rare diseases. He was, we're doing some work in, in ALS. And so we started reaching, we had a chat mostly just about really about rare disease drug development. And at the, it was funny because at the last two seconds of the call, I just said, Oh, and, 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 you know, I said, yeah, I'm learning a lot about this because my son was just diagnosed um, with, with a rare disease. And so then we ended up talking for like another hour and he's just a wonderful, wonderful, you know, kind, interesting guy who does very similar work. Um, And so again, he was just like, well, I mean, if you want to try to get some cells, we can do some research on this. And so again, it was, you know, that's the thing looking back on the pandemic and they were actually in the middle of these huge fires in Australia. And so we got, Ethan got the skin biopsy, got the cells grown, sent them over. They got stuck somewhere in, you know, in the shipping for like three weeks, I want to say, but they were alive when they actually got (laughs) them. So we're like, okay, so that's it. Yeah. So here we are. (laughs) And they've done some really good work. Like you said, just to they try to understand his mutation. I mean, yeah, and I think we know what to do. Um, yeah. So maybe the hardest question. Um, this is a hard question. Um, when you have your child that you have to live with, and you have to accept that this your this child, this particular child, has limits that will, will make his life very much different from what you hoped mm-hmm. and make your family's life different from what you planned. Um, how, 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 how does one come to terms with that? And how do you um, continue to look for opportunities to feel hope again when in fact the situation feels hopeless? Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, it's, um, I mean, you just grieve it for a while. I think, you know, I think the beginning was definitely, you just grieve because like I said, every word he would say at the time, we did have a reason because we had no other reason to not think he could be normal. Um, you know, we just would continue to think, well, maybe this is it. Like now he just slow, he's right. He's just slow. He's going to pick it up. And so I think the reality was you just, you just grieve that life for some time. And then, and then finally, you know, I think it was, um, you know, partly my professional, you know, environment too, was just really learning about like, wow, look what all these people are doing. My head, my, my family is like incredibly supportive. I have a brother and sister and so nieces and nephews and their spouses and my parents are amazing. And Oliver's, Oliver's mom and his family, you know, his just, we have a lot of family um, that's very, very supportive. And, and then we have our education. So I think it really became like, wow, 
you know, like I, it's a privilege and an opportunity to look at this child in the eyes and say, I'm going to do my darndest to, to do something. And I mean, honestly, it's a day to day. I mean, I'm here in San Diego right now. And, you know, the question is like, how's everything at home? Like, is everything, so it's just, it's just every day. Right. So I think that you also have to level some expectations that like life is hard and there's hope because, you know, organizations like Enlorum. I mean, and and if it's if we can't help him through Enlorum, I'm going to find another place. And, you know, so I think that's just kind of what the purpose is, is that, you know, I feel like I have this have this obligation to him to do something. Um, and I've got some time. So young enough that I still have a few years to to be able to help him. And I'm committed to doing that for him and for his sister, um, who will be with him forever. And um yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't think there's an answer. I think you just have to be realistic that like, it's just, it's not what you, what you maybe thought you wanted, but, you know, I think the other thing is like, I, I feel like you could talk to most people who have met Ethan who, and like my, my parents are perfect. They're like, Oh my gosh, like he brings what a gift, right? What a gift that he's brought to all of us. I mean, he's, he gives us purpose, you know, we had purpose. You always have purpose in your life, but he's like something specific, and you can feel like you can maybe try to do something about it. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's wonderful and it's hard all at the same time. It's called life. Yeah. No, that's very, it's just life. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, very true. It, it, it's, it's more than life. It's, it's life with, with bad luck thrown in. So now you've been in Norm, uh, just uh, off the top of your head. What what are the most important things you've learned? I mean, I've learned so much. I think I, I've told you this. I mean, I, I feel like I've learned more about like, you know, just leadership, about team building, about communication, about just being completely resilient, about, you know, digging in your heels. And when you know how you can make a difference in people's lives by working really hard beyond hard, you know, harder than I ever have. Um, and I just, honestly, I just feel like it's, it's been the most transformational experience here. I mean, to be able to help you grow this organization, um, and honestly to learn from you personally, I think that's one thing that I, I feel like I want people to know is like, you're like Stan Crook, right? This, like this, this guy who invented RNA therapeutics, who's like this legend, but you're also this like wonderful, kind, warm leader who supports our team more than anybody could ever do. And, and I think that's something that I feel like I, I'm going to continue to try to instill in our team. Um, and it's just an amazing, you know, quality, a lot of the, the loyalty and other things that I've learned. So, I mean, I've learned how to do my job. So I, I do think, you know, hopefully you would agree with that, right? I do think we're doing a pretty good job of actually managing the 100 growing patients. And I feel very confident I can look every single one of them in the eye and say where they are in our process. Um, but it's the soft things that a lot of times are harder to learn. You can't just seek out the people who's going to teach you those things in life. You just, you can't find them yourself. So they kind of come to you. So, so thank you for that. Well, I'm glad I asked the question when I get depressed. <laughs> I'll listen to the answer, you know, uh, it, it, not <laughs> all those probably things, but yeah. um, it's, um, um you know, as you learn about science, you learn about medicine, you learn about patients, you learn about yourself. Mm -hmm. And as you bring others to work on a common goal, uh, you, 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 all of us have a chance to learn 
about ourselves and then use that knowledge to do a better job tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that's what we're about, I think. And, you know, I do know for a fact that cultures are different. Cultures can be created and cultures make an enormous difference in how much productivity is yielded. And um, it sounds as though you very much subscribe to that as well. Absolutely. I mean, and every single person we have here is handpicked. I would, I would definitely say every single person has brought a new, a new dimension to what we've done and and helped us to, you know, exponentially grow. I mean, really, um, it's been pretty incredible. So, you know, I think our future is bright, and 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 that's one of the the other really interesting things I think is even where we are today. You know, how many conversations were like, oh yeah, well, this is part of the plan that you know was many years in the making before you even established Enlorum. So I think that's one of the really important things too is just you know like this isn't about just doing something and going away. I mean, this is about setting like we are we are changing the landscape of rare disease drug discovery and development, starting with the most rare. I mean, it is, it's just like the, the impact and it all starts with how we actually behave and interact with one another internally. Um, But I mean, when we can really share that impact, like on a per patient basis on like a, you know, broad, even the, the regulatory environment, all of those things I think are really, really pretty incredible too. So, um, but yeah, it all starts with the culture. I for sure agree with that. So let's one more, one sort of last questions. What are the biggest surprises? that that you've encountered in your journey at Enlorm? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think the biggest surprises are just honestly that we continue to, you know, see the same thing over and over and over. I mean, and and I don't know, I don't know why that's actually surprising, but we we continue to see patients go through these these you know, similar experiences over and over and over. And I think that over time, hopefully we will continue to see things evolve. I mean, I think the other surprising in a very favorable way is just, um, you know, people are drawn by this mission. And, you know, I think the number of partners that we have, like the, you know, whatever we have 30, 40 and growing, you know, corporate partners, all of the patient groups, all of these different, you know, individuals that can really get behind our mission that has been so so wonderfully surprising as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's a really tough question, but I think honestly, I think it's just been, it's been a great experience. So, um, you know, I just, I just feel really, really excited about our future and and so much that we continue to learn. And I think some of the things that may, may feel like a surprise, we might, we might not have so many surprises over time as we continue to learn and evolve. Hope so. Um, <laughs> I mean, and I hope we can change the, journey to diagnosis um, to a much more attractive, um, frequently encountered event. But mm-hmm. well, uh, thanks, Sarah, for for sharing uh, your life and, and, and the difficult part of your, your life, uh, because I think it's informative to those who have to live with similar kinds of problems. Um, anything I haven't asked you that I should have or anything you <laughs> wanted to add? No, I don't think so, Stan. I think, I think this is, this has been a really nice conversation now. Thank you. Me too. And, and let me second everything you have said. I think, um, the reason Enlorm is where it is, is the fact that, uh, 
um, that you are here at NLARM and that we are as committed a, a team as we are and work as seamlessly and effectively as we do against, I think, incredible challenges um, is, is a product of all the people who've chosen to join and they've all joined for the mission. They certainly joined to live with the misery I caused. They joined for the mission. But anyway, a, a pleasure to have you. I'm sure um, the folks listening will will find your story um, informative and compelling and encouraging uh, for others who have to face similar difficulties. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much, Dan. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorem as nano-rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorem comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorem or today's episode, visit enlorem.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorem.org. Search Enlorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. This video is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook and produced with the help of the following professionals. Thank you for watching.